I entitled this morning's message, Blindsided, but Walking by Faith. Let's begin with this idea. How do you handle things when they hit you out of nowhere and send you reeling? Um, what is your instinctual response when you get blindsided? Uh, I have been blindsided many, many times in my life, and sometimes I've been very proud of my responses, and sometimes I have not. Where are you at on this? I think maybe the deeper core issue is this. How well do you submit to God's movement in your life? Will you fight for all that you have or will you submit in faith that he knows what he's doing? I think that uh, some of us are really in a place that we've allowed maybe our personalities to drive us, that we believe that I deserve this, this is rightfully mine, and I will fight with everything that I have to force things to go well for me. There are others of us that are much more peaceful in knowing that our Heavenly Father cares for us and that He's in control of everything and that He's watching it even when we're not. But the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Either will or faith will define your life. Either will, forcing it to be the case, being the driven, tenacious people, when you pass away from this life, they'll say things like, well, you were a bulldog and you never took no for an answer and you forced everything through. And even when it seemed like it wasn't the right idea, you drove it home. And is that what you want to be known for? Or do you want to be known for someone that is of faith that did not have a resigned spirit, but have a driven spirit while at the same time having a not my will, but thy will be done attitude? Will people look at you and see you as someone that forced it? Or someone that went along with the plans of God. I would hope that it would be the latter. Now turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 15, 1, page 266. 2 Samuel 15, 1, page 266. And while you're turning there, let me give you a recap on where we're at. Everybody remember last week's message. We closed it up with talking about Fabio. Everybody remember that? All right, we talked about Absalom. Absalom was the, the, the long-haired, uh, no-blemish guy. Remember, his mom is from royalty in an Aramaic nation. Uh, his dad's King David, who is known for being extraordinarily handsome. This guy is the stud of all studs in terms of being amazing-looking, and he's going to use this to his advantage. Uh, remember, his hair was so heavy, he would cut it off once a year, and it was five pounds of hair. Do we all remember this story? All right. So this guy is now in line for the throne. Why? Because David has a series of sons, and his oldest son, who was to take over the throne, was murdered by this guy. Right? Amnon was killed. Why? For attacking his sister. So now we have an attack on the sister. We have the firstborn is dead. The second in line disappears from the face of the earth in the sense that his name was Daniel and he's no longer mentioned. So now David has had a lot of pain in his life. Now his third son is ready to take the throne. But David had a problem with Absalom. Do you remember this? When Absalom slaughtered his brother and he planned it meticulously for two years to murder his brother. When he did that, he went into hiding. He took off into his mother's side of the family in the Aramean nation, and he went out there for three years. After three years, he said, I'd rather die than not come home. 
David, King David, brought him back but wouldn't talk to him for another two years. They've been apart for five years. Finally, they reconciled. But by this time, Absalom does not like his father. Absalom has no respect for his father. And Absalom is going to force his own plans. King David is now approximately in his mid, perhaps even late 60s. He is in the final decade of his reign. He will end up reigning for 40 years. He has already reigned Israel for 30 years. He is at the height of his power, but at the same time, he has now began to distance himself a bit. Some scholars question whether or not he has begun to become ill. Because we find out that life was very hard for David and his body is not holding up very well. He ends up dying relatively early. For that day and age when he dies between 70 and 75 years old all right so relatively young man his body couldn't handle it and we find out he gets very frail towards the end we wonder whether or not that is happening now all right let's take a look read the first couple verses and we'll pray for it second samuel 15 1 after this after absalom reconciled with his father and came back to Jerusalem. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. All right. Anybody seeing the schmarminess of what's going on? All right. You're going to understand that here in a moment. Uh, Absalom's a jerk, and uh, he's playing the politics game, and he is out to take out dad. Let's see how that goes. Let's pray about it. Heavenly Father... We uh, open up our hearts to you and ask that you would open up your word to us that we might be able to discern what is good and right. We pray, Father, against the enemy, and we ask that you would allow us to walk in freedom, to listen to you deeply during this time, not the opinion of man, but, Lord, that we would listen to your word deeply. And we pray right now, Father, that you would change us and transform us into men and women of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's see what the Bible has to say. After this, Absalom, who's now approximately 30 years old, got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Why would he do that? Uh, history seems to suggest this is the first Israelite king to ever have chariots and horses. What did he need that for? Well, I want you to think about it this way. Chariots in that day were the new cool car, right? Because not everybody had them, not everybody had access to them, and in Israel they were not very common. So if you wanted to look fancy, if you wanted to look good, if you wanted to look like you were impressing people, you roll up in a nice vehicle. That's obviously what he's doing. So he has a chariot and horses to take him around. Now remember, he's already stunning in how he looks. So he's going to play that up a lot, and he's going to use it for publicity, he hired 50 men to run in front of him as his entourage, 
Okay? Now, Samuel the prophet prophesied many years before this that bad kings would come into Israel and they would do stuff like this. It's all about the flash. It's all about the flare. It's all about the I can amass all this stuff for me. Who cares about everybody else? That kind of aren't I amazing kind of concept. Samuel said, when you see that start happening, things are going to go poorly. Well, Absalom's doing exactly that. So who are these 50 guys? Well, they run around and go, did you hear Absalom's coming? He's the biggest deal in the world. Man, I'm here. I'm hired by him. There's like 50 of us. And oh, they're the guys, if you ever watch boxing, do you guys know the guys that all walk up with him? Who are those guys? Right? And they always go, champ, you're the champ. You're the man. You're the man. And it's like, what? What, what are you doing? Is that what you're, you're the You're the man guy. Is that what you do? That's really weird. You're rubbing his shoulders like your hands are penetrating his muscles. That's not happening. Obviously, it's not doing anything when you're doing that, right? So why do you keep touching him? Knock it off, right? This whole entourage stuff where I'm so big and bad, I got everybody with me, that's Absalom, right? He doesn't have any concern for the nation, but he's sure going to play like he does. And Absalom used to rise early. He's very politically motivated. He used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate, What does that mean? Well, we think of gate in terms of doors closing. That is not at all the ancient world gate. The ancient world gate is a tunnel that you would walk through. It was very long, very broad. It had apartments and compartments in it, and it was the hub of activity for the city. Think about it practically. If you're dealing with business dealings with another nation, you don't let them in your city. You let them just to the front gate. Right? That way you can protect things. Also, it's the center hub where everybody can go to have their matters handled. It is the court. It is the police area. It is all the civil affairs. All right? Are all inside the gate area. You could also spill out into the front so you had more room without it messing with everything inside the gate. We got it? So he would rise early and go to the public forum out in front of everybody where all the big dogs would hang out. All right. When any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, who's the king? David. Who did they come to see? David. Absalom would call out to him. Hey, buddy, come here for a second. Where are you from? Oh, man, I'm from this town. Absalom would say to him, see, Your claims are good and right. The guy's like, I haven't even told you what my claims are. I know. I'm brilliant enough to know in advance. I think you're right. (laughs) Right? Because what does everybody want to hear? That they're right. I think that you are right. Everything that you have just now told me, yes. Yes, I see it. I understand, brother. I'm with you. And yes, I do think that you are right. Um, Unfortunately, I'm looking around and there is no one designated by the king to hear you. Sorry, he doesn't care enough. Um, That's a drag. I wish, you know, obviously it probably would be better leadership if he had somebody out there to listen to you. But I understand he's probably busy and has some things going on. Are we all seeing the insidiousness? He goes a little bit further. Then Absalom would say, oh, if I were only in charge, if I were the judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause, you guys could come to me. I'd give you justice. Oh, but I'm not. That's a drag. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. What does that mean? It means that whenever the guy, now remember, he is, for all practical purposes, the heir to the throne. 
I think David's looking at another son, but the whole nation's looking at this guy. Whenever somebody would come up to the prince with his big entourage, they would start to kneel down before him in honor, and he'd go, whoa, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? No, you don't need to kneel down. Come here, come here. Bring it in. Bring it in. Give us a hug. Ah, yeah. You know what? We're brothers here. I'm not playing a big game with you. You know what? I understand that's what you do to the king. I'm not like that. What I'm trying to say is that I know hard life. You're like, shut up. You don't know anything about it. What are you talking about? He's like, no, I get you, man. I feel you inside. So you know what? We don't need to be kissing the ring. Let's just hug. Let's bring it in. Right? What? Okay, weirdo. Verse 5. Uh, verse 6. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. It worked. Now we would look at that and we go, really? They fell for something that stupid? How do you think politics works today? Oh, that's right. It's the exact same way. How do you think people get elected? That's right. It's all the same thing. All right. So it's no different now as it was then. Everybody's playing the game and people are buying into the game. Now, here's my problem with all this. Where is he doing all this? It's at the city gate. It's in the most public place. How does King David not know what's happening at the city gates of Jerusalem? Does he know and he's just not doing anything? Is this another one of those times where his kids can get away with everything? Is that what's happening? Is he maybe going, well, I don't really know who the Lord's going to call next in throne. Maybe it is Absalom. I don't personally like the kid. But you know what? Maybe if all the hearts go over to him, that's fine because I'm going to be out of here at some point anyway. I don't know what David's thinking, but I know that he's abdicating responsibility and leadership because Absalom's a bad guy, Right? So why is he allowing him to take the hearts of the people? That is not good. Let's say David does find out about it and he's intimidated. How do you handle it when people rise up underneath you that look like they're vying for your spot? How do you treat those people? Right? Maybe David's a bit more faithful than we're giving him credit for right now. Maybe he does see it. Maybe he does know that Absalom's vying for the throne. Maybe he's not doing something about it for key reasons. How do you handle it? Let's say in your job, you know that the new person in the company wants your spot. You knew they came in. They've been pretty sneaky, but they're still slightly overt about it. And you know they're gunning for your position. If they get it, you're out. How are you going to handle those people? Is it going to be where you're going to fight fire with fire and you're going to do to them what they do to you? Are you going to do that? How are you going to handle it? Are you going to handle it with integrity or are you going to handle it in a nasty way? Watch how King David responds to some of these because it gets a lot worse. Verse 7. At the end of four years, four years of wooing people, this guy is patient. Do you remember how long he waited to kill his brother? Two years. I don't have that kind of patience. If I'm going to kill somebody, i got like six weeks. All right? I'm like, if I can't figure it out in six weeks... Forget it. I'm not killing you because I, I got something. Else. I got other things to do. All right. This guy is far better than I am at. Yeah, that's weird. Okay. Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. All right, moving on. <laughs> at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. Let's throw up a map here if we can. Uh, now, remember, little geography lesson, the bottom piece of this map is the African continent. The top piece is where you see Europe. You can see the boot shape. There's Italy. That's the Mediterranean Ocean. 
Um, the bulge coming out from the right-hand side is uh, Asia Minor, that's Turkey. And then the Middle East is down there where you see the Jerusalem markings. Let's blow that up. All right, fantastic. This is the common map that you're used to seeing. On this map is all the things that show up in this story. But mostly I want you to understand that Jerusalem is there. That is the hub of all of David's activities. It is the holy city. It is the city of David. It is the um, core of the nation at this point. David used to reign from a place called Hebron. That is down south from there in the Judah area. Because remember, when the nation was split, the top portion that was hanging out with Saul was called Israel. The lower portion that was loyal to David was called Judah. All right? Now, David's son, the, the next prince or the next king, wants to go down to Hebron and he's going to ask his dad's permission. Why would he ask his dad's permission? He's the prince. He can go anywhere he wants. Well, you're going to find out it's all part of a trick. Let's take a look at what the trick is. Absalom said to the king, and the king's his dad. He's lying to his dad. Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Okay, that was sneaky in a whole bunch of different ways. Let me show you why. You just read that and you blow past it. Watch what happened. Absalom goes, hey, Dad, real quick. I know we don't hang out much. I got a real quick question for you. Do you mind if I go to Hebron? Hebron, why do you need my, my permission? Well, it's kind of an important thing. I'm going to offer sacrifices and stuff because I made a vow to God. You're not going to get in the way between me and God, right? I'm just, I'm just asking. Okay, does everybody realize the ability to manipulate someone else? Let me, if you don't know how, let me teach you. Okay. <laughs> Here's how it goes. If you need to bring something up to someone else that they don't like, you can shut them down by throwing God's name into it. Okay, here's what you got to do. You just got to throw in a God told me because what are they going to say? They can't fight it, right? They can't argue with you because they, no, he didn't. Yeah, he did. You don't know. You weren't there, right? So, for example, this is how it happens in, uh, in, in, in singles in the church. If you got to break up with somebody, you know it's going to go bad. You got to throw God's name in. Anybody ever had this happen to you? awesome. God's leading me somewhere else. It means I don't want to be with you anymore, right? It's a terrible way to do that. Own up, man up and do it right. And now, unless God specifically called you to do that, be very careful of dropping his name in just so no one can come back and get you. Absalom is manipulating using God's name and saying, you wouldn't dare block me from doing a God thing. Would you, that would make you a monster. So he already has him over a barrel, right? Oh, and dad, do you remember when I made this vow? No, when did you make the vow? Do you remember when you kicked me out of the country? Oh, that's right. I was over on mom's side. I had to hang out there because I was afraid you were going to kill me. But we're better now, right? Okay, why did he drop that? Because now David has guilt. Okay, you're right. We did have a rift. And yes, you were outside. All right. So how is David supposed to answer this question? He's got him. So what is the next line? So the king said, go in peace. How in the world am I supposed to block that? Right? Absalom's sneaky. He's corrupt. And he's doing some seriously bad things. So he arose and went to Hebron. Why does he want to go to Hebron? Well, first of all, that's his birthplace. It's where he was raised. 
But more significantly, it's the place that David was honored as the king of Judah, the south, and the place where David was honored king over all Israel. It's David's king place. So if you want to make a vie for the throne, where do you want to start? The king place. Not only that, but when you go down to make these sacrifices in your vow, if anyone asks you, dude, what are you doing? You can say, my dad said it was cool. That's why he needs his dad's permission, right? Because now it has the authority of the king. Let's take a look. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, I want you to shout, Absalom is king at Hebron. Because I'm going to make a shot for the throne. When, with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. Who are these folks? Dignitaries. What's Absalom doing? He's setting up an atmosphere. What's he doing? Here's, here's how it goes. If I'm going to say that I'm king, I need all the important people to be there. Now, they can't know why they're coming because they're not going to back me up on this. But if I send them all special invitations as the prince, hey, come on down to my special party, you're all going to show up. You don't even know why you're there. But watch this. If we're all in a huge room and you all know that King David said we could all be here, you're going to assume it's pretty official. If I announce that I'm king, you're going to look around the room and assume everybody else is in on it. You know, you know that you're, you're like, am I the only one that doesn't know what's going on? And everyone else starts clapping and it's just creating an environment. And they're like, yay, we got a new king. All right, that's cool. I didn't realize that's what we were doing, but yeah, that's fine. And it lends credence to everything he's doing. This is brilliant strategy. All right. And I would suggest that it all comes from the next guy. While Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from the city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Who is Ahithophel? Well, it's going to be very difficult to keep these names straight. So I threw up a uh, designed out a chart for you. If we can jump over to the chart. All right, here we go. Let's go with the sports motif. Yeah, we all cool with that. All right. We got the Judah monarchs going against the Israeli rebels. All right. So now if you take notes, I'm going to keep this up. Next time we jump into the story, I'm going to add, because on Absalom's side, a bunch more people jump on. But it's very hard to keep the names straight. You're like, who's that guy? Why do I care? All right. We have it all up here on there. Right? King David against Absalom. Now on King David's side, he's got his special forces, the special ops guys. That's the Carathites and the Pelethites. Also the Gittites, that is a 600 men strong Philistine bodyguard contingent led by the next guy, Itai. Itai is the team leader of that special ops unit. We also have all priests are on David's side. That is Abiathar and Zadok. Remember, they're going to transition over. They're the big priests in the nation. Their kids are named Ahamaz and Jonathan. We also have David's key counselor along with Ahithophel, which is Hushai. Then we got this funky guy named Ziba. We'll talk about him in a second. And then Abishai is the enforcer. All right. Now, if you go on the other side, on Absalom's side, he has David's counselor, Ahithophel. How did he get him? This guy's very significant. He is David's most brilliant 
strategist and counselor. Why did he jump sides? It cannot be for power reasons because the job that he gets with Absalom is equal to the job he has with David. It is not a advancement. So why would he turn on King David if he is David's most trusted counselor? We've already talked about him in the past. Do you remember who he is? That's Bathsheba's granddad. Are we following it? His son is one of David's mighty men who worked alongside his son-in-law, Uriah the Hittite, the other mighty man. It's all coming back to bite David. He saw the conspiracy. He saw the whole affair. He saw everything fall apart. Now Bathsheba's in David's house. Uriah's surprisingly dead. All this family intrigue. He bailed and flipped. We got that? It's a personal thing. Then we got Shammai you're going to learn about. We're going to close with him uh, in a moment here. And this guy will make you smile. All right, here we go. Let's go back to our story. As we're going into verse 13, let me suggest something to you. All this was going on without David knowing it. David knew something was up, but David did not know to what extent. Do you ever live paranoid that a bunch of things are happening that you don't know about? I kind of do. Um, it's this idea, and why do I feel that way? Because stuff has happened that I didn't know was going on, <laughs> all right? It's just pretty factual. Um, but do you understand that God sees everything? That even when you miss it and you're not alert, God's alert? And if God is watching out over you, do you really need to live paranoid? Or can you really have a certain peace and a comfort knowing that nothing escapes God's view? That literally... God is all over it when you're clueless. And if he has your back, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to manage everything. You don't have to watch over everything and try to hang on to it and try to do everything yourself. If you're a child of God, God's running the show. He's got it covered and he didn't miss it. Yeah? Let's pick it up in verse 13. A messenger came to David and said, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom, meaning the coup worked. It's not going well, buddy. Absalom's taking your spot. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Here's what just happened. Dave, your son just vies for the throne. All right, let's get out of here. How is that the answer? Why don't you go, well, then crush him. Who does he think he is? He's going to take my throne. I don't think so. Because that's what Saul did, right? When he found out that David was going to replace him, what did he do? He crushed David. You will never take my throne. You will take it from my cold, dead hands. You will never get in my spot. Who do you think you are? Did David react that way? No, David is not Saul. David goes, guys, collect your stuff. We're out of here. Now, is it because he's afraid? No. David's a warrior. David fights giants as a kid. Yeah? He has the toughest, nastiest bodyguard crew. The mighty men. Rip lions apart, right? Kill 300 men to everyone. He has those guys looking up to him. I really don't think he's a wimp. 
David is tough as nails. He's not afraid of anything. So he's not leaving because he's afraid. Is he leaving for strategy? Probably. But I think the main reason why he's leaving is because he refuses to allow a civil war to happen in Jerusalem. He's not going to let his people, innocent people, get hurt in the middle of a fight that he needs to fight. His answer was, we protect the people, let's get out of here. We're going to fight this battle. We're going to handle it some way, somehow, but we're not going to fight here. Let's get out of the city. And they bail out. He is going to put into place a strategy to make sure that he manages the situation. But I will tell you this. He is not prepared or willing to harm his son. Remember how he handled Saul? No matter how miserable Saul made him, he would not touch the Lord's anointed. David has a whole different view of who's in charge. And he handles it very differently. The king's servant said to the king, check this out. They said, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. King, you're on it. We do what you do. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. Remember I told you he had enough women in his life that he could leave ten behind? Wow, all right. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. So here's what's happening. They're all marching out of Jerusalem to go run across the river area. They have to do a 21 mile journey on foot and by horseback. And they're stopping to see if everybody's with them. So they're basically him and his leaders are hanging back and watching people go by. Yep. 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 Right. He's just counting on who he has. So sure enough, it's the special teams. They march out the Carathites and the Pelathites and they go through. Now here come the Gittites. I'm going to paraphrase for you. The Gittites, the Philistine bodyguard contingent comes walking by in the back is a tie, their leader. Dave goes, whoa, 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 hey, Atai, come here for a second. Dude, I just hired you not that long ago. This is not your war, man. I'm now got to fight my son. This is an internal strife conflict. You guys are going to get caught up in it, and some of your men are going to die. I'm not cool with that on my heart. You need to go home. Remember, David's always watching out for everybody. He's not grabbing everything on his side. Hey, you need to go home. And Atai looks at him, and he goes, sir, you die, I die. You cool with that? All right. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Whoa. <laughs> and he walks away, right? Okay. These are really, really strong, tough warriors, and they're willing to die at a moment's notice. So everyone's crying as they go out of the city across the valley. David's barefoot, he's got his head covered, everybody's weeping, and David moves out rather than fight for everything that he has. He's not going to do it in a nasty way. We pick it up in verse 24. At that moment, while he's bummed out having the worst day of his recent life, Abiathar came up and behold, Zadok, the priest, came also with the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. What just happened? The priests walk up and here they come. Everybody's marching out and they come walking with the Ark of God. And David's like, oh, hold up. What are you doing? We have God in the box. We're ready to go. And he's like, he's like, what? Put it down. What? We're not taking the God box. Why not? It's ours. Well, it's not yours. First of all, God is not bailing out of Israel. God's not leaving Jerusalem. That is God's throne. So put it back. And he tells him, go take it back home. I don't want to take it home. Put it back. 
has them put it back. God didn't leave this. This is me. I'm leaving. And you know what? That's the way it has to go. And no, this is not our good luck charm, right? You don't just take the box because that means we win. Do you understand that's what Saul did? How many times do I have to tell you? We're not him. Oh, okay. Look at his response in verse 25. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back. And let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Is that your attitude in life? David goes, you know what? We're not taking everything we can to win our side. We'll do our best. And if God wants me out, I'm out. That's it. If God's mad at me still, if God is punishing me, if this is the wrath of God, then so be it. I guess I'm done. He has this peace putting himself in the hands of God. And they continue marching. He's bawling, he's sad, and a friend runs up and goes, Hey, Dave, Ahithophel flipped on you. Really? Seriously, my best counselor. All right? What happened? I don't know, man. Absalom got him. Heavenly Father, frustrate his counsel that he would not help Absalom Destroy what you're doing. That was a prayer. Right then, Hushai runs up. That's his other counselor. You know David smiled. Hushai, what's up? Are we going? Are we going? Am I late? Where are we doing? Let's go. Hushai, you're not going. What do you mean I'm not going? I'm going where you're going. Dude, I need you on the inside. I need you to go back. I need you to hook up with Absalom. And I need you to get in the way of Ahithophel. If this guy is running the show, we're going to lose. I want you on the inside. Dave, you realize what happens if they find out. I get it. Are you man enough? Yeah, I'm in. Okay. See ya. All right. Bye. How did David feel at this low point in his life? We know exactly how he felt. Why? Because he wrote two psalms about it. Psalm 3 and 55. He wrote about this journey right here. This walk of shame and sadness that his son wants him dead. It is also believed that he may possibly wrote chapter uh, 63 in Psalm about it too. What did David say? Here's how he handled his pain. God, I'm tore up emotionally. I'm sad and I'm afraid for my life. If I could fly away from all this, I would. I just wanted to stop. So defend me, Lord, when I can't defend myself. It's one thing when it's an enemy that I can fight. It's another when it's somebody that I love. I know that God hears me. I know that you're going to do something about this injustice. So for any of those that can hear my voice, cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. Amen. Powerful. Yeah. Is that how you react when you're in pain? Is that how you react when you're spinning? Ziba comes running up. They're about 15 miles out. They're all exhausted. They ran out in the middle of the night. They didn't have anything to eat. Ziba shows up. Who's Ziba? Okay, let's do this. We can track this very easily. David had a best friend, the son of Saul, named Jonathan. Jonathan didn't have any kids left except for one that was crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Saul's key advisor, Ziba, took care of Mephibosheth. That's this guy. Why is he showing up? Where's Mephibosheth? He's not with him. King, I brought you all these supplies. Here you go. All the stuff for all your men and all your ladies and your family and everybody. You guys okay? Ziba, where's Mephibosheth? That's who you watch out after. I know, king, he flipped on you. He thinks he can get the throne back. 
Now, you're going to find out later, Mephibosheth has a completely different story. Can we trust this guy? I don't know. We don't even know what side he's on. That's why there's a question mark. Yeah? All right. Let's pick it up in uh, chapter 16, verse 5. We're going to close with this story. This one is awesome. Here we go. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man from the family of the house of Saul. He's a distant relative of Saul. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shammai said as he cursed, get out. Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil's on you. You're a man of blood. All right. For those of you that have seen the movie, this guy's going, boo, boo. Right? Okay, who is this guy? Okay, here's, you got to give this guy some serious credit. He may be a little weasel, but this guy has some serious guts. Here's what just happened. They're walking out on the worst day of their lives. All the special forces are together. Remember how strong they are? Remember who's leading them. The two biggest, nastiest guys are brothers, Joab and Abishai. They used to have another A brother, but he's dead now. Joab and Abishai are the guys who kill people in their sleep. They have this whole crew, and this guy runs right into the middle of all these people and starts throwing rocks at them. You're like, what are you doing? He's throwing dust in the air, and he's screaming, God hates you. I hate you. And you're like, man, what is wrong with you? Now, this, here's this guy. He's a radical guy from Benjamin that has never let it go that David took over the throne from Saul. He blames him for everything. He wants the old leader back. And he's going to scream and yell and freak out on David. And anything bad that happens to David, he's going to go, see, I told you so. God's against you. God hates you. He's an accuser of the brethren, right? So this guy's freaking out. Look at the next line. It's the best one of the whole story. Then Abishai... Remember the leader? The son of Zariah said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. <laughs> Abishai's veins are sticking out, and he's just like, I will kill him. Give me the word. I will shatter that guy's spine. Right? I mean, because really, he's running around in the enemy camp. And they're like, uh, It just takes one little bang, and you're done. That's it. And he's looking at David going, please, let me kill him. All right? Now, they're all holding because they respect David, thankfully for Shammai, right? Look at David's response. David's already had a rough day. But the king says, what have I had to do with you, you sons of Zariah? Meaning, all you want to do is kill everybody. That's not the answer to everything. Is he, uh, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who am I to say, why would you do that? David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my own son wants to kill me. How much more now this Benjaminite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord told him to. And you know what? If he didn't, maybe it be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shammai went along the hillside opposite him, cursed as he went, threw stones at him, and flung dust. 
And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. That's where we're going to break today. So is Satan beating him up? Is God, is this? David's having a really hard time sorting it out. Because David knows that God swore to him because of his bad decisions and turning against the Lord that the sword would never depart from his house. He knows he is under a curse of God. So no matter what bad stuff happens to him, he starts playing this game of maybe God wants him to curse me. What do I care? My own son wants me dead. Does it matter? Bring it, dude. What do you got? You going to scream and yell at me? You going to throw rocks at my head? Fine. I'm already having a horrible day. Do your best. Guys, don't kill him. Let him go. I don't know. Maybe God really is not all right with me. Maybe it's part of my punishment. Now, the other guys are like, maybe it's part of your punishment. It ain't part of my punishment. I'm sick and tired of him. <laughs> right? But they respect David. Here's the closing thought. Will you fight to keep what's rightfully yours in your own mind, or will you submit to the movement and plans of God? Do you trust him? David lives a different sort of life. He's willing to walk away from the throne, jeopardizing everything, because it might be what God wants. Could you do that? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for rocking our world once again with your truth. That, Lord, may you be glorified in us. That, Father, there are many of us in this room that, Lord, we have been sent reeling and we're responding really poorly. We're mean and nasty and fighting back, and all you're asking for us to do is mellow out. Trust me. Lord, we don't want to let go because we're not going to get back what we had. And I guess your answer, Lord, is that you don't want us to get back what we had. You want to give us something else, something better. We glorify you and we praise you today in Jesus' name.